for what you've done in our lives and in the world at large. You are a great God, and we give you worship. We give you praise. We honor you with our lips this morning. Would you help us to honor you with our lives as well? We ask that as we come into your word this morning, you would speak and you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for each one of us this morning. Convict, compel, transform us by the power of your spirit, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. Kids can go on over to junior church and down to toddle time at this point. Continuing our trek through the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And we are in chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Chapters 8 and 9 have already pictured for us, chapter 8 at least, Jesus' authority on display. The Sermon on the Mount, the Kingdom Life Discourse, chapters 5 through 7 gave us uh, an expression of Jesus' authority through his words, that his teaching is authoritative, God's very word. And then chapter 8 thus far has shown his authority over disease, his authority over people, his authority over nature, and his authority over demons. He says a word and all of these things, sickness, nature, people, Demons respond to him immediately with obedience. And we'll continue that thread in chapter 9 as Jesus continues to put his authority on display. And we'll begin by seeing his authority over sin itself in a unique and powerful way in these early verses. As we begin to think about that, I, I wanted to consider the concept of the church as a hospital for sinners. Now that phrase has been used and, and it's a little bit contentious as to what do we mean when we say that kind of thing. One thing that we don't mean if we refer to the church as a hospital for sinners is that we must bring non-Christians, those who are still suffering from the disease of sin, into this church building in order to get their remedy. That's not what we mean when we refer to the church as a hospital for sinners. I am not a doctor and nor will I ever pretend to be. But all of us, as Christians, those who follow Jesus, are, in a sense, the great physician's nurses. We prepare patients to meet the doctor. We administer the medicine that the doctor prescribes. And we should be doing that out there. Out in our families, in our homes, in our jobs, in our workplaces, in our communities in our neighborhoods. Ironically, Dr. Jesus cures the disease before he alleviates the symptoms. Therefore, the church is a hospital for sinners in the sense that every follower of Jesus continues to experience the symptoms of sin and needs constant attention from our great physician. We administer, consider that word, administer, the gospel to each other to continue to deal with both the sin and the suffering that we Christians still experience. And people who've never met the doctor, who haven't received the cure, the forgiveness for their sins because of the death of Christ, well, we should be pointing them to the great physician as well, both in here on Sundays and also out there every other day of the week. So let's take a look at how Jesus portrays himself as the great physician this morning. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. 
And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Familiar story, very well known. Let's dig into some of the details. We see Jesus here presenting himself as the doctor who has authority to heal disease, but also to forgive sins. The doctor who has the authority to both heal disease and forgive sin. We begin in verse 1, and we remind ourselves of the context. He's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the eastern side, which is Gentile territory, the Roman Decapolis area where he had just crossed over, landed, encountered two Gentile men who were possessed by a legion, an army of demons. And he commanded that army to leave, and that army evacuated the area immediately into a herd of pigs, and then they plunged into the sea and they died. Uh, You remember the story. The crowds and the city folk who heard about this came out and asked Jesus to get out of here. Leave us. And so he does. And so he gets back in the boat, goes back across the Sea of Galilee to the western side to his own city, Matthew says. This would be Capernaum. Uh, Mark's account of this story tells us that explicitly in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. So his own city is Capernaum now. So he's, he's taking Capernaum as his kind of his base of operations, his ministry headquarters, if you will, maybe even in Peter's house. We remember back in chapter 8 where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. This was right there in Capernaum. And so this may very well be the house where what happens next takes place. But he doesn't specify that. But Capernaum becomes his base of operations, his own city there on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And so we're introduced here to some people. Now, it's interesting that Mark, in his account of this story, gives us a lot more detail about what happened. The story is famous for what Mark tells us, and Matthew ignores all of that. 
You remember that there were four men who brought this paralyzed man to Jesus and they couldn't get to Jesus because he was teaching in a house and there was a huge crowd in front of the door. And so these four men carrying their friend on a stretcher couldn't get through the crowd to get close to Jesus. So you remember what they did, right? They went up on the roof and they did some property damage and ripped open a hole in the roof and lowered the man down right in front of Jesus, interrupting his teaching. And Matthew chooses to tell us none of that. Matthew doesn't care about those details. Those are the fun details that we like and that make us remember the story. Matthew wants us to zoom in on Jesus, what he says and what he does in this encounter. And so we see here these men bringing to Jesus, a paralytic. Now, that word is not very specific. It's just a Greek word brought over into English. It's literally paralytic. But it, when we read the word paralytic, we think of someone who has maybe quadriplegia or paraplegia. But the word is not that specific. It simply refers to someone who cannot walk. That's all the word means. It doesn't tell us why they can't walk. They may have a disease that caused it. They may have been injured in an accident that caused it. Or there may be some other cause. But the word itself doesn't tell us enough to know what his condition is. The, only, the point is, he can't walk. He's lying on a stretcher and his friends are carrying him to Jesus because he can't walk for himself. That's the point. And that's a very important point for this story. The man has no ability to walk. Okay, so hold on to that thought. Okay, so Jesus is teaching. He's there in a house, and these four friends bring this man to Jesus, and Matthew tells us Jesus saw their faith. Now, we're going to look a little bit more closely at what Jesus sees and what Jesus can see that nobody else can see in this story. But here, we recognize Jesus is God. We recognize he's got access to our thoughts, and we're going to see that really clearly in the story But that's probably not what's going on here with these four men and the man who can't walk, these five individuals. Probably, if we read through Mark's account and Luke's account of this story, Jesus is seeing their faith in what they did. A biblical principle that we see everywhere in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is that faith is put on display, it's made visible by our works, by our deeds. And so Jesus sees their faith in that he sees them climb up on top of the roof, be willing to tear a hole in someone's roof of their home, probably somebody they don't even know and have a relationship with. This is some stranger's house that they're willing to open up his roof. Those actions, those deeds showed visibly for everybody to see their faith. Faith is made visible by what they do. It's a principle we see all over Scripture, and that's probably what we're to conclude here. Jesus saw their faith, not by using some supernatural insight, but simply looking at what they did, how they acted, what they were willing to do, what risks they were willing to take in order to get their friend who needed help from Jesus to Jesus. And so Jesus saw their faith in what they did, in their actions, in their deeds, Now notice what Jesus says to this man. He's just been dropped through the roof. Matthew doesn't tell us that, but we know the story from the other accounts. He's just been dropped through through the roof in front of Jesus, interrupted the teaching session, and Jesus' first words to this man are, Take heart, my son. 
take courage. Every other time when Jesus says this to someone, take heart, the person he's addressing is always afraid, terrified in some way. This man is fearful. Jesus addresses his fear before he does anything else for this man. Now think about the situation. Think about this man who cannot walk. He's just been dropped down by his friends. And Jesus has seen their faith, which is the faith of the friends and the man lying on the stretcher. They have faith, and this man has faith, but now he finds himself face to face with Jesus, and he's afraid. Why might that be? Well, if we think about it, there could be a number of reasons. He might be afraid, even as he believed that Jesus could take care of his issue, could take care of his problem. Now that he's face to face with Jesus, he might be afraid that... What if the stories aren't true? When it comes down to it, after you've taken the risk and you're right there on the cusp, on the precipice of doing something significant, doing something great, doing something amazing, and you get right up to actually doing it, you can be filled with fear all of a sudden. Is this really going to work? Is it going to be okay? Is it going to turn out all right? Or consider what we know about other encounters that people have with Jesus. Think of Peter from Luke's account, Luke chapter 5, the first time that Jesus met Peter. Peter was out in a boat. He'd been fishing all night. He caught nothing. Jesus is teaching on the shore. Peter's coming in after fishing all night and catching nothing. And the boat comes into the shore. Jesus turns around and says to Simon Peter, let me come into your boat and push out a little bit so he can continue teaching the crowd. And after he teaches for a bit, he turns to Simon and he says, hey, why don't you toss your net over on the other side of the boat? This is a Jewish rabbi. This is a teacher. He's not a fisherman. What does he know about fish? That's what Simon's thinking, surely. Simon does it out of deference to the teacher, and you remember the story. He caught so much fish that his nets were about to break. He had to get help to haul them in. It almost sank the boat. You remember how Peter responded to that? He fell on his face at Jesus' knees, and he said, Get away from me, Lord. You, I am a sinful man. Jesus did a miracle for him. And suddenly, he's aware of his sinfulness. I wonder if that's what this paralyzed man, this man who cannot walk, is experiencing. He's in the presence of Jesus, face to face, close to him, close to the Holy One of God, as the demons called him. And he suddenly becomes aware of his sin, that he is in the wrong place. He doesn't deserve to be there. He doesn't belong that close to Jesus. And he suddenly is overwhelmed. And Jesus' first words to him, take courage, my son. It's tender words. He calls him my son, my child. Gentle Jesus. That's how he treats us when we're afraid. That's how Jesus treats his children, his people, when we are afraid. For whatever reason, he comes to us gently to comfort us to encourage us, to get us through our fear. So this man hears those words, take heart, my son, and then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Perhaps that's the indication that that's exactly what was going on in this man's heart. Suddenly, he became overwhelmed with his own sinfulness. And Jesus knew that. Jesus recognized his fear, his trembling in the presence of Jesus was because he was suddenly aware that he's got a bigger problem than simply he can't walk. Now, that's not why he came. That's not why those friends 
carted his stretcher up to the roof and dug a hole in the roof and dropped him down. They didn't come there wanting him to get his sins forgiven. We don't know anything about what kind of sin he was in or whether he was in, in sin or whether he was just, just a generic old sinner. We don't know. We don't know whether his sin caused his condition. We don't know any of that. The text does not tell us that. But we do know one thing. That's not why he's there. He didn't come to Jesus for forgiveness because you don't do that. In their world, the Jews, they have one place and one way to get forgiveness. You go to Jerusalem to get your sins forgiven. You go to the temple to get your sins forgiven. You bring an animal to get your sins forgiven. You kill that animal at the altar in Jerusalem at the temple to get your sins forgiven. That's the only way. And let me just, as a slight rabbit trail, tell you as Christians... If you want to understand forgiveness biblically, you need to go and study the book of Leviticus. You need to study the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus, you will read about, especially chapters 1 through 7, you will read about the sacrificial system that the Jews were instructed to do, to practice. And if you read chapters 1 through 7, you will read one phrase repeatedly. And when you read it, you should read it like this. And the priest made atonement for them, will make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. Forgiveness was offered by God and extended to Jewish sinners when they brought the sacrifice to the temple, when they brought the animal, they laid their hands on the head of that animal, and the priest slit its throat and took the blood and applied it to the altar. And God said in Leviticus 17.11 that he would graciously accept the death of that animal as payment for the death of that sinner. The death that that sinner deserved to die. God accepts a substitute. That's what what Leviticus is all about. is to teach you that God accepts a substitute. And he offered real and genuine forgiveness for them when they did that. Now, it was limited. It was forgiveness for that particular sin, whatever they confessed over that animal. They had to do it over and over and over and over again. But don't think that the forgiveness that God offered when He says, they shall be forgiven, is a sham forgiveness. It is real. And it is the very foundation of the forgiveness that Jesus offers to this man right here and that He offers to all of you. If you don't get that, you don't get forgiveness. You don't understand what's been done. In order to receive the forgiveness of sins, a payment must be made for God to remain just. And He does remain just. But I want you to get the shock of what Jesus has just said. The scribes get it, and they're going to comment on that reality in just a moment. They get the shock of this, but I want you to get this. Jesus has just said words that only one man in in Jewish world, has the right to speak. Your sins are forgiven. That's what the priest would say, the high priest would say, after the sacrifice has been made. What you see in Leviticus 1-7, through especially chapter 4, with the sin offering and the guilt offering, is that promise of forgiveness in connection with that sacrifice, the priest then makes that declaration. When the sacrifice is brought... How do they know they're forgiven? The priest makes the declaration. He's got the authority to pronounce someone's sins forgiven. Now, he doesn't do the forgiving. 
But he's got the authority to pronounce those sins forgiven. And so what Jesus is doing here is bypassing the temple, bypassing the sacrifice, and bypassing the priests. He's not a priest. He's not a Levite. He's got no bloodline right. And he appears to have no biblical right to say what he's saying. Now he's going to prove that he does in a way that goes way beyond what they were thinking. But get this understanding. What Jesus is doing here is he is taking the place of the temple. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus will say these very words. Something greater than the temple is here. Jesus, in His own body, in His own ministry, is the fulfillment of all the prophetic hopes of the temple. When you read about prophecies in the Old Testament about a coming temple, that's Jesus. He is the temple that was prophesied in the Old Testament. He fulfills everything that the temple stood for in the first place. The presence of God with His people, Jesus. The ability to offer, sacrifice, to offer forgiveness of sins, Jesus. The place where you commune with God and you pray to Him, Jesus. The place where you receive forgiveness for your sins, Jesus. He is the temple, and He has replaced it, fulfilled it completely. So they're shocked. The scribes sitting around hear Him say these words, and I wonder what was going through that man's mind. Again, I didn't come here to deal with my sin. That's not why I'm here, Jesus. I didn't come to the doctor because I've got a sin problem. I've heard you can heal people. I've heard you heal people who can't walk. That's my problem. So there's a little bit of dramatic tension here. I mean, in this moment, he just got a pronouncement of his sins forgiven. Okay, how does that land on this man who cannot walk? Uh, What does that even mean? I didn't offer a sacrifice. I I am not in the temple. I'm not in Jerusalem. I don't even know what you're talking about. Much less the friends who are sitting up on top of the roof watching and listening. Much less the crowds who have been watching and listening. And then we get the response of the scribes. The immediate response of the scribes. These are the Bible teachers. These are the Jewish experts. These are the ones who've memorized Leviticus. And they understand what it means for God to offer forgiveness of sins. And so they hear and we get Matthew and the other gospel writers recording their response in verse 3. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. They, can't, they don't have a category for the possibility that Jesus is in any way doing something priestly. That he's taking a priestly prerogative and doing that. And he is doing that. I want you to see that. This is an onion. And we need to peel back some of the layers of the onion here, okay? The main piece of the onion, the best part, the kernel, the middle, (laughs) the main part of it is what the scribes conclude. They get the observation right. They're right about their conclusion that he's claiming a prerogative of God because he's not in Jerusalem, he's not a priest, and there's been no sacrifice offered. So when he just unilaterally pronounces a person's sins forgiven, he must be claiming more than to be a priest. He must be claiming more than simply human, any kind of human role or office. He must be claiming what God alone can do. And they get that. They know their Bibles. They understand that. And so 
we see Jesus' response to this, their accusation of blasphemy is that he is, again, unilaterally offering forgiveness of sins without a sacrifice. There is precedent for that. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 12, the story of David and Bathsheba. David murdered, lied, adultery, maybe rape, a host of sins. David covered it up, went on about his business, and then Nathan the prophet is sent to him, tells him a little story about a lamb. You can read the details in 2 Samuel 12. But at the end of that story, David confesses and admits what he's done. And you remember what Nathan the prophet says to him? Don't fear. God has put away your sin. No sacrifice. God unilaterally, as far as we know, David never went to the temple and took an animal to offer sacrifice for murder, theft, adultery. Those are capital crimes according to the Mosaic law. But God put away his sin unilaterally. And Nathan the prophet spoke that to him. So there's precedent for that. But God alone can do that. Only God can bypass the law. Only God can do something like that. And so the scribes understand what's going on here. But Jesus, verse 4. Now the ESV and most of our Bibles say knowing their thoughts. The Greek is a little more vivid. Seeing their thoughts. As much as he saw the faith of these men, when he looks at the scribes, he saw their thoughts as though he were reading a book. He has access to the heart. He knows exactly what they're thinking. And notice what he says. Why do you think evil? Why do you think evil? What they've said when they looked at what Jesus did and they said he's blaspheming is evil thoughts. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? We're going to see this later in Matthew 15 where Jesus teaches us very clearly that the source of evil thoughts is the human heart. comes from right here. When you have a thought that is sinful, and you need to understand that, you know, some people might think that, well, as long as I, even if I'm thinking something bad, but as long as I don't act on it, or as long as it doesn't actually come out of my mouth, then it's okay. No. No. Thoughts can be evil and sinful. Thoughts need forgiveness. Thoughts need to be confessed and admitted as sin. Thoughts were among the sins that Jesus died to pay for. Evil thoughts like this. Jesus saw their thoughts. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? And then he gives them a logical test here. Which is easier to say? Notice that it's about what you say. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. That's easy to say because how do you know if they were or not? How do you know? There's no proof. There's no physical, visible proof of that. So you can say it all day long. I mean, even within the sacrificial system, when somebody brings a sacrifice to the temple and they kill the animal and the blood's poured out, how, do the, how does the sinner who brought that animal know that their sin's really been forgiven? How do they know that? Well, the priest says so, okay? <laughs> what then? You have to believe that word. But, so which is easier? You say that and there's no proof, but what if we say rise and walk? What if we give a command to the paralyzed man, a command to the man who cannot walk? What if we do that? Well, if we're going to do that, 
then he better get up and walk or it proves nothing. It shows that the words are empty and meaningless and have no power. Now notice what happens next. But that you may know. So he's just challenged their thoughts. Your thoughts are evil. Let me correct them. That you may know, understand, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. (laughs) He's using that title, Son of Man, again. We saw it last time in chapter 8 for the first time. And Jesus here is very much drawing on Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel's vision in the midst of four monstrous beasts for animals that represented kingdoms on the earth in the time frame of the fourth beast, which was a grand monster of destructive power, which most everybody recognizes is referring to the Roman Empire historically during the reign of the beast, of the monster. One like a son of man is going to approach the throne of God, come to the ancient of days in heaven, and receive from him an eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom the kingdom of God that he then extends and shares with the saints later in Daniel chapter 7. That's who Jesus is claiming to be. That son of man who will ascend to the throne of God and receive all authority on heaven and on earth. Here he's saying, I haven't ascended yet, but I've already got all authority on earth. Specifically to forgive sins. Now notice that too. What he's going to prove here is that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That should contrast to what we learned in the Kingdom Life Discourse, in the model prayer. We've been taught to pray to our Father who is in heaven, forgive us our trespasses, right? So the Father has authority and expresses his authority to forgive in heaven. Our Father forgives when we ask him to. Jesus, standing there on earth, has the same authority to extend forgiveness to people unilaterally. Now what's interesting when we recognize that is how, how infrequently, how rarely we actually know of Jesus doing this. Only twice in his ministry, as far as we know, does he ever pronounce anybody's sins forgiven. This account with this man and the story of the woman who comes and pours ointment over his feet while he's sitting at a banquet at a Pharisee's house. Uh, And there he pronounces, this is Luke chapter 7, he pronounces her sins forgiven. Only twice in all of his ministry, as far as we know, does he unilaterally pronounce someone's sins forgiven. He didn't go around doing this all the time. He didn't do this to the crowds and say, all of your sins are forgiven. He didn't do that, as far as we know. Only this man and that woman got this special treatment in the Gospels. So how does he prove it? How does he prove that he has this authority on earth? He turns to the paralytic and he commands him to do something he cannot do. I want you to understand this because I think this applies spiritually as well as physically. God has the right and the ability to command you to do something you have no ability to do. The whole philosophical question about whether ought implies can Somebody, if God gives you a command, does that imply that you must have the ability to respond? No, it doesn't. He's commanding a man who does not have the ability to walk, to walk. (laughs) Physically, that man can't walk, and Jesus commands him to walk. It's the same thing that happens when he commands you to repent of your sins. It's the same thing that happens when he commands you 
to believe in Him. You can't. You do not have the ability to do that. Well, the man gets up and walks, so what happened? Well, this is where we see the principle that we see from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, all the way into the book of Revelation. When God speaks, stuff happens. Things change. The old prayer by the early church father Augustine is very appropriate. Augustine would pray, command what you will and grant what you command. Command us to do whatever you want us to do, but then also grant, give, enable us to do what you've commanded us to do. That's what happens here. When Jesus speaks the word, rise, pick up your bed and go home, the very command of Jesus heals the man. He heals by his word. He decrees this man can now walk. He gives the ability by speaking. That's exactly what happens to every sinner who receives the forgiveness of sins. Every sinner who's saved. Jesus spoke to your heart. He called you and gave you the ability to respond with faith and repentance. This is a picture of that. So verse 7 is my favorite verse in the passage. He rose and went home. No fanfare, no conversation, no display, just he's out of there. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't call him to follow him. Just tells him to get up and go on home, and he obeys. Verse 8 gives us the response of the crowd. We don't know how the scribes, what did they do with that? I'd like to know. (laughs) He was directing this argument to them. I'd like to know how they took it. I don't think they took it well. We'll meet them again later. They're not very happy with Jesus. But we get the crowd's response. And we need to remember, especially in Matthew's gospel, the crowds, they don't get it right. Don't follow the crowd. That's kind of good general advice that we give to our teenagers and to each other. Don't follow the crowd. When you're reading the gospels, don't follow the crowds. Their responses are never right. The crowds saw it. They were afraid. Huh, that's weird. They were afraid, and they glorified God. That's good. That seems right. But why did they glorify God? Who had given such authority to men. I don't think that was the point Jesus was seeking to prove here. Jesus was demonstrating His divine authority. And they concluded, when they saw it, oh, God's now letting people pronounce the forgiveness of sins outside the temple. They got it all wrong. The scribes drew the right conclusion and rejected it. They saw that Jesus was making a claim to divine authority, and they said, he can't do that. That's blasphemy. The crowd said, well, he's not really doing that. God's just given him a special, unique authority as a human. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is exercising divine prerogative, divine authority. Yes, Jesus is exercising a priestly function, but he's doing more than that also. And he's able to do this, by the way, because on the basis of the sacrifice that he knows he's going to offer in just 
a little while. He can unilaterally pronounce this man's sins forgiven because this man believes in him and he knows even though the man doesn't. Think about that. The man doesn't know that Jesus is going to the cross. The man doesn't know that Jesus is going to offer the sacrifice to pay for those forgiven sins. This man doesn't know that. He's not told that. And yet his trust in Jesus was such that Jesus extended forgiveness to him. So that's the end of this account. Jesus then leaves and we're introduced to Matthew. Traditionally, the one we understand to have written this very gospel, Matthew the tax collector. He was sitting at the tax booth doing his normal everyday business. And in the middle of the work day, Jesus comes up and says, follow me. And Matthew abandons his profession, abandons his wealth. It is probably true that Matthew was the wealthiest of the twelve, or would have been. It's interesting that in Matthew's own account of his own story here, as he tells his own how Jesus called him and he got up and followed him, he doesn't say what Luke and Mark say. Luke and Mark tell us that Levi, they call him, his other name, left everything and followed him. I wonder if Matthew leaves that little statement out as an expression of his humility It doesn't draw attention to the fact of what a great sacrifice I made. But the others noticed. Because when he left his profession, he left an exorbitant amount of wealth, most likely. Tax collectors were known to be very, very wealthy. And they got their wealth by cheating. They got their wealth sinfully. This man, Matthew, in his position there in a tax booth off the shore of the Sea of Galilee outside of Capernaum, was most likely taxing the fishermen, guys like Simon Peter and Andrew, James and John, those four fishermen that Jesus called earlier to follow him. James and John, Simon and Andrew, they would have had to visit Matthew's tax booth regularly and give him money to pay for, to pay a duty, a duty, a tax on the fish they caught in the Sea of Galilee maybe even to pay a tax on their usage of the boat out on the sea. And they would have been paying an exorbitant extra amount to fill up Matthew's pockets. Matthew just joined them. They're to be be best buds now. (laughs) They're going to follow Jesus around together. You can imagine that might create some tension. Um, Matthew would have been hated by his own people. He's considered to be a traitor. Uh, by Jewish people. He would not have gone to the temple. He would not have been offering sacrifices. He would not have been welcomed there by the priests. And that's what, that, knowing that little bit of background is what sets the stage for what happens next. So, so Matthew rose and followed Jesus out of his tax booth, left his profession behind, left his wealth behind, left his status behind, and then he hosts a party. Verse 10, Jesus reclined at table in the house. Luke 5.29 tells us that this is Matthew's house. Specifically, Matthew's hosting a party, and he's inviting his buddies, his old buddies, the other tax collectors and sinners. Now, we all recognize we use the term sinner, and we're talking about everybody. But for a Jew, typically, when they would use the term sinners, most often they they had a particular sort in mind. We're talking about prostitutes. We're talking about thieves. We're talking about adulterers. 
and adulteresses. We're talking about violent people. These are the people sitting around the table with Jesus and his disciples. Can you imagine the dinner conversation? They're having a nice meal, and Matthew seems to be wanting to do this to kind of tell everybody, hey, I'm leaving, you're not going to see me anymore. And here's Jesus, here's why I'm leaving. It's a good thing for Matthew to do. But the scribes, the Pharisees, are walking by, and their dining area would have been an open area that could have been visible to people walking by. And so the Pharisees happen to walk by. They hear the conversation. They recognize Jesus' voice, perhaps, or others, and they come to the door, and they see and hear what's going on, and they don't like what they see and what they hear. And so notice in verse 11, they don't address Jesus They're asking his disciples. They don't come to Jesus directly to address this. They address his disciples. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher, and I can imagine a little bit of disdain in their tone when they say this, your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, Jesus heard him say that, and Jesus decides not to let his disciples handle this. He decides to take care of it himself, and he has a message for these Pharisees. When he heard it, verse 12, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So Jesus is doing two things there. One, he's claiming to be a physician, a doctor. He's claiming to have a cure for the ailment that these people have. And he's not talking about paralysis. He's not talking about other disease, physical diseases. He's talking about sin. And he is the physician who heals that problem. And so the other thing that he's doing is he's characterizing all the people sitting around the table as sick. Now that's, that's a figure of speech. Okay? That's an image. They're not sick like they're bleeding or they've got an ulcer or they've got a migraine or they're not able to walk physically. Their sickness is sin. That is the disease that Jesus deals with most profoundly. And there's yet another thing that he's doing. And we see this as Jesus then goes further and pushes the Pharisees. Remember, they're the Jewish teachers. They're the ones who know the scripture so well. They've just called Jesus the teacher. And so he gives them a lesson. Go and learn. Here's some homework for you. Since you you recognize I'm a teacher, well, let me teach you something. And he quotes to them Hosea 6, 6, part of it. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. To understand what Jesus is doing, what he wants them to get, we need to go back to Hosea for just a moment. If you'll turn in your Bibles there, I'm sorry we don't have these on the screen, but I want you to listen to the Word of God, and if you've got a Bible, I want you to hunt for things a little bit. The prophet Hosea is the first of what we call the minor prophets, just after the book of Daniel. If you flip back to your Old Testament there, Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah, the bigger, more famous uh, prophet Isaiah. Hosea 6.6 6 is what Jesus quotes. To understand that in its context, we've got to look at Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5 and 6 go together. They are a part of this message that the prophet Hosea is addressing to the southern kingdom, Judah. Okay? Now, Hosea prophesied during a season before the exile, before the Assyrians took the northern kingdom out, and before the Babylonians took the southern kingdom out. 
And in chapter 5, the prophet Hosea is rebuking and chastising and calling the people to repentance. He's announcing their judgment. He's telling them judgment is coming for your sin. That's what Hosea 5 is about. And if you'll glance down to Hosea chapter 5, verse 13, he's going to refer to the northern kingdom Israel as Ephraim. That is the way that Hosea often refers to the northern kingdom uh, Israel, Ephraim. That was one of the tribes of Israel, the northernmost tribe. Probably it was often called Ephraim because the first king of the divided kingdom, the first king of the northern kingdom, was Jeroboam I, who was an Ephraimite. And therefore, the northern kingdom is often referred to as Ephraim in the prophets especially. And so what we see in verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Dr. Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. Notice verse 14. This is Yahweh speaking. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. Yahweh is announcing his judgment coming. It is imminent and nobody can stop him. Chapter 6 then begins with the prophet Hosea calling the people to repent. In light of the announcement of judgment, the prophet Hosea addresses them and says, won't you turn back to Yahweh? Look at verse 1, 6-1. Come, let us return to Yahweh, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. So notice, even in the announcement of judgment, it's not the end. There's an announcement of hope in the midst of judgment to come. And then we skip down to verse Four, what shall I, so this is Yahweh again speaking through the prophet. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love, that's the Hebrew term chesed. It's often translated steadfast love, loving kindness, sometimes mercy. But notice it's chesed. It's like a morning cloud. Your loyal love, your steadfast love is not very steadfast. It has no sticking power. Your loyalty to God doesn't stick around. That's what he's saying. Your chesed is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, chesed, and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So the So Yahweh is saying to them through the prophet, I delight in loyalty, loyal love, commitment to me. I delight in that, not sacrifices. Now, get this. He's not denigrating or saying something bad about the sacrificial system. That was a gift that he gave to the people of Israel. But notice, he delights in loyalty because if you're loyal to God, if you express your love to God... You don't need to offer a sacrifice. If you're being loyal to God, if you're expressing your faithfulness in your relationship with God, you're not sinning. And so, of course, he delights in obedience and faithfulness and loyalty rather than sacrifice because sacrifice implies sin. 
Sacrifice is only needed because of the presence of sin. And he's saying, if you would turn away from your sin, our relationship could be mended. Our relationship could be restored. Now, when Jesus quotes this word in Matthew chapter 9, and he will, interestingly, this is one of the rare occasions, I think it may be the only occasion, where we have evidence that Jesus quoted a particular verse twice in his ministry. He'll quote this same exact line to the same exact group of people, the Pharisees, again, later in Matthew's Gospel. And he'll ask them, essentially, have you learned what I told you to go and learn? And of course, no, they haven't. We'll come to that later when we get there. But here, what Matthew is, what Jesus is doing when he says, I desire mercy, is he's recognizing the biblical reality that the way that we express our loyalty, our commitment, our faithfulness to God is by how we treat other people. Right? When Jesus is asked later in his ministry, what's the greatest commandment? He gave them two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love God if you don't love your neighbor is the implication. And so it is here that God delights in loyalty to him that is expressed in mercy to others, treating other people with compassion and mercy when they're sick and needy. And that's what these Pharisees, these scribes, are not doing. They are in a position of leadership amongst the Jewish people. They've been put in a position of responsibility where it is they who should be the doctors. They should be looking at these tax collectors and sinners and they should be reaching out to them with compassion and mercy. If they were loyal to God, if they were truly in a faithful relationship with the Lord, they they would view and treat these tax collectors and sinners much differently. And Jesus is rebuking them heavily. He lands the plane after quoting that line, telling them to go figure out what that means. Go study your Bible, because you obviously don't get this. For I came not to call the righteous, not to call righteous people, or people who want to call themselves righteous, people who think they're righteous. I haven't come to call them. I've come to call sinners. And in Luke's account of this story, Luke makes explicit what is implied here. Calling is not just a random invitation. Calling is from something to something else. And Luke 5, 20, 32 makes this clear. I came to call sinners to repentance. To repentance. That's why Jesus is sitting around the table with tax collectors and sinners. He's calling them to repentance. You can, they, they're assuming that because Jesus is having a conversation and a meal and sharing food with them, he must endorse their lifestyle. He must endorse their sin. He must support them in their treachery against Jewish people as tax collectors. He must be okay with that. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm here with them because they recognize that they're in the wrong. They recognize that they're sinners. They recognize that they're sick. This is the doctor who makes house calls. He's not waiting for people to come to him. He's not. He goes to the people he calls. He sits down with them at a table and he certainly doesn't approve of their sin. He calls them to repentance. And that's what he's been doing since that day through us. As we preach the gospel, as we share Jesus with others, we should be calling sinners to repentance, to faithfulness to God. I hope you know that you're a sinner this morning. I hope you know that that's who you are. 
Don't think that you can come thinking that you've got everything figured out or that your righteousness is sufficient. No matter how good a person you think you might be, you cannot earn favor before the Lord. And you cannot earn a place at the table with Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, you don't have to. You don't have to get your righteousness before you sit at the table with Jesus. He sits and eats with sinners. But he doesn't leave you in that state. We get one of Jesus' many statements about why he came here. I came to call sinners to repentance. There are others, and I want to close quickly by looking at some of the other statements that Jesus makes about why he came. In Matthew's Gospel in particular, but we'll look at a couple of others. We'll go real fast and we'll be done. Why did Jesus come? Matthew 5, 17, in the midst of the kingdom life discourse, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill everything that was presented in the Old Testament, including the book of Leviticus and the sacrificial system that's presented there. I came to fulfill that. The prophets, like Hosea, who called the people to faithfulness to God and repentance, I came to fulfill that. I came to show what it looks like, and I came to pave the way so that it could become reality in the lives of sinners. I came for that. Secondly, Matthew 20, 28, we'll see later. I came, the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He came to serve by giving His life as a ransom for many. Not all. Ransom. That's a payment of a price. That's what's talked about in Leviticus. The significance of the animal sacrifices is that their death pays for the death that's been earned and deserved by human sin. Jesus came to pay that. That's the ransom. He gives His life on the cross to pay for the sins of the many. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. And then He tells this, the par- three parables about lost things, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. In Luke 19. He came to seek and to save the lost. And so the question is, do you think you know where you are? If you haven't come into a relationship with Jesus, do you recognize that you don't know where you are? Do you recognize yourself as lost? Do you feel your lostness? If you don't, you need to recognize that reality because He's coming for lost people. And if you think you're found, if you think you're in the right place, if you think you figured everything out and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you need to wake up. You need to look at the map. This that tells you just how lost you are. Fourth, very simply, in John 12, 47, Jesus said, I came to save the world. And He doesn't do that by saving every single human being on the planet. He saves the world by saving some of the people on the planet. And out of those people that He saves, He makes a whole new world. A whole new creation. Our passage here in Matthew 9.13, He came to call sinners. And then in the parallel in Luke 5.32, came to call sinners to repentance. And finally, one outside the Gospels, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.15, very famously, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. That's what His name means, right? Jesus. 
He was named Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. That's the disease that we need to be worried about. That's the disease that causes all the sickness. That's not to say that your sickness and your bodily ailment is caused by something you did specifically, but the sin, the great rebellion of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, unleashed in this world, fallenness, brokenness, where there's pain and suffering that every human being on the planet experiences to one degree or another. Some of that is caused by your own personal sin. Much of it is not. But in any case, Jesus has come to deal with the real disease, the real problem, sin. And he's done it really well. He's done it really well. He paid the penalty. He died. And he rose from the dead. And he extends the offer of forgiveness of sins to all who will come to him. Heed that call. Know yourself to be a sinner and receive the forgiveness that's offered to you on the basis of his death. We sang about it so richly this morning. The blood of Jesus is what accomplishes forgiveness. God can forgive you as a sinner and remain fully righteous because he accepted the death of a substitute. Not an animal. They're not worth enough. There's not enough animals on the planet. There haven't been enough animals on the planet throughout history to kill them all to cover your sin. But one perfect man volunteering himself to die for you is sufficient. Who has no sin of his own to pay for. And he's done it. He's done it. Now, you just need to trust him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your love that's on display when you forgive sin. Help us to revel in that reality that you've not left us to our own devices. You've not left us and abandoned us in our sin. But you have come into this world in the person of your son to rescue sinful people, to save us. And when you save us, when you take us out of the prison that we are born in, when you take us out of the slave camp that we spend our whole lives in, you make us different. You not only forgive our sin and wipe the debt clean, but you change us and you empower us by your spirit to live righteous lives. Ironically, we don't call ourselves righteous people. We remind ourselves, as the Apostle Paul did, that we are, in fact, the chief of sinners. Each one of us should know that about ourselves. I am the chief of sinners because I know my sin better than I know anybody else's. And you've forgiven every drop of it, every thought, every attitude, every word, every action. You have forgiven and paid for in full. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness. Help us to live faithfully in light of it so that as we receive the forgiveness of sins, we might extend that forgiveness to those who hurt us and we might treat other people with mercy and compassion as our Savior did. So thank you for showing us these things. Thank you for calling us to yourself in this way. We praise you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.